0: Welcome to The Brew, a podcast series which deep dives into trending topics about business and culture. Now sit back and join in on the conversation over a cup of freshly brewed coffee. This episode is sponsored by Blackstone Launchpad at UCR, powered by Techstars, and the Office of Technology Partnerships at UCR. Welcome to The Brew. Today's episode is sponsored by Blackstone Launchpad at UCR, powered by Techstars, and the Office of Technology Partnerships at UCR. Today I have two fantastic guests from the bioengineering department at UCR. We have Will Grover, who is an associate professor of bioengineering, as well as Robert McKee, who is the lecturer of the bioengineering senior design class. So to get the show started today, I'm very excited to talk about a lot of these topics since they're very relevant to the current situation, COVID-19. But the first thing I really want to talk about is the senior design class at UCR for bioengineering uh, and especially how that's been shifting due to the fact of COVID-19 and obviously everything's online now. So senior design classes have to make a massive shift. So can you talk a little bit more about that, Robert, uh, to get started? Like, what is the senior design class? What are the students expected to do in that class and how it's shifted?
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, And this, as you say, has been probably one of the biggest shifts of any of the courses in the department. Typically, senior design and bioengineering, it's a year-long course, mm-hmm. students come in, they have to conceptualize their project, come up with what that device is gonna be, what need is it solving or, or problem is it kind of answering. They then have to go in and develop a mock business around it, um, and, and that's why I've worked on you with is, is impasse, where students need to come in and say, well, if we're gonna do a business around this, what would that look like? Yep. And then really in this third final quarter, it's doing all the testing, it's actually, physically building the prototype, 3D printing customizable parts, um, getting into machine shops and and welding things together, actually running tests um, to make sure that code checks out, to make sure that the device works, that all the component parts work. And that's a big part of the course we've had a cut now. Um, A lot of students, they don't have the tools that they actually need in their own homes. Um, And so one of the biggest shifts that we've uh, had to perform now is, well, how do we do senior design in the spring quarter when people don't have access to those resources? And really what we've decided to do is focus on those soft skills that are still really important in terms of getting a job, uh, whether you're going into industry, whether you want to go into a grad program. And so one of the things the students now have to do is much earlier in the quarter, put together a full user guide and technical manual for their device. What all the parts in, are all the parts and components? Technically, how do they all fit and work together? What function are they performing for the device, as well as put step by step guidelines together so that when they have their final prototype and they would have a user for that, they can go in and say, well, here's exactly what you would do to put our device together, to turn it on, to use it, to shut it down safely, to calibrate it. And so we're having them do that with the device as much as they've gotten done through the last two quarters. And then they have to do the same kind of assignment, same documentation for whatever they would envision their final prototype to be, right before it would start going to market. And then in between, um, essentially what they need to do is come up with a document that's their plan. And they have to do their plan on two different pathways. The first pathway is saying, well, let's assume we still had access to all of those resources, right? The personnel, um, the machine shops, What would that pathway look like? What would our timetable be? What tests would we perform? And then on the flip side is given the current scenario, what is your contingency plan? What simulations could you do? Are there other tests that you still could perform? What are the necessary pieces of software you would need to run those tests? How can you do as much as you could remotely? Um, and I think this whole idea of contingency plan is something that I'm going to want to build on going forward in the future. It's something to be honest, I didn't think about too much, but it really is important for any business, especially a startup. I mean, we're seeing this even with the labs on campus to have very good and well-defined contingency plans in place. So you don't lose efficiency. You don't lose productivity. When something comes up on a scale that's out out of your hands, right? No one business six months ago could have predicted that we would have been going through COVID at this point in time. Even though the experts were saying, hey, at some point we're going to have one of these, you know, you should start planning for it, make sure these things are in in place. Um, It's really necessity that sometimes gets progress done um, and makes those changes. So that's one change I want to make carrying forward. And then what we're going to do is mock experimentation. Um, And so once the students have their final prototype document together. They're going to come to myself and the TAs and they're going to say, here are the set of experiments that we would run to test our device. Um, And so while this is more of a thought exercise, we're still working on those skills of being able to put together a detailed experimental procedure. What are your controls? What are the statistical analyses you perform Um, and doing that in an iterative fashion as well. So that's kind of where we're taking senior design now with the whole COVID-19 crisis.
0: Okay. And then uh, I'm very interested to hear kind of from both you guys on some of the projects. Uh, I don't know, Will, how versed you are with some of the projects in design. I'm sure you are um, kind of having touch points with them, but um, have you guys tried to have them shift maybe their um, purpose of those um, devices that they're trying to develop or their services um, based off of COVID-19 and providing more uh, necessary, like finding kind of that gap that COVID-19 has created and making the bioengineering senior design project more aligned with that?
2: Rob, do you know particular instances? You'd probably know more details like that than um, I would.
1: So I do think that's one thing that we we haven't seen as much of. Um, You know, typically again a year-long quarter, most of the students are two-thirds of the way through. They've already written mock grants, kind of put together what a company would look like resolving around this. Um, And so I didn't want to have them recreate things from scratch for a whole new device. Now, that being said, I think this definitely opens up avenues for new devices or what students might be focused on coming in next year. Um, You know, it it would never have been on my mind for a student group to come in and say, hey, we want to make up some kind of a viral detection system where we can detect particles in in the air or anything like that. Um, Now that's kind of in my background as well. If a a student project comes in and says they want to do that next year, fantastic. One of the the big issues with the senior design course is often getting students to think about what a a successful project would be. Um, Does it fit kind of the senior design criteria? Is it something that can fit within the budget they could do within a year? I think now looking at the kind of this pandemic um, and how much it's influenced everyone, I think that is going to drastically affect going forward what types of projects we come up with um, that students take on. So I think the the bigger change will be seen there in the future more than than right now. Yep. You know, had this had been something that happened start of winter quarter, I think I would have tried to push maybe a couple more shifts to a actual kind of viral or pandemic based project, whether it's a societal element, a scientific technical element. Um, but no, not not too much for this year in terms of the topics.
2: Okay. And and I'd chime in too, Rob. I mean, I feel like this is, this is valuable for the students, right? In the classrooms, what are we telling these engineering students? You're trying to solve problems within constraints. Sometimes the constraints are money-related or time-related or, or what have you. Well, look around us. You know, the world is filled with... Problems and constraints, and, and we're all experts on them now, right? We know we need more personal protective equipment for our first first responders and healthcare providers. We know we need better rapid diagnostic tests, yep. right? I could I could spend hours in the classroom uh, preaching that message, and it and and you know it, it hopefully gets through, but it wouldn't get through as much as just watching thirty minutes of the evening news does for our students right now, right? So so uh, you know I, I guess I'm not trying to be Pollyanna and say that everything is fine. It's been a, it's been a, a seismic shift for the curriculum, you know, throughout yep. the university, but but it, it this is is a real-world laboratory for bioengineers to to get first-hand experience seeing what are the challenges we're facing and, and how are we going to engineer solutions to them and so i and i'm grateful for that and the second thing that rob said that, that resonates with me is Tapping the brakes a little bit in their in their senior design projects and reflecting on, say, experimental design, you know. Yep. Uh, you So so where Rob is going to meet with the, the students on Zoom and say, describe to me what your next three steps would be or something. Think about how hectic, well, life is in general and how few opportunities in a way we have, right, to offer that kind of reflection, introspection, uh, you know, it's valuable. Um, sometimes we, we use th- tools like 3D printers and things that can be so fast. I can go from an idea to a working prototype in my lab like that. And then mm. once in a while, I'll look at the prototype and be like dang i really messed up i should have thought for 30 seconds before printing that you know if that makes sense and so yeah. so you know in a, in a way there's a i wouldn't say a luxury but but it's it's an opportunity for students to reflect refine their hypotheses you know explore other applications for their technology so i guess you know a long way of saying there's more to do than just build things and test them in a project like this and the students are seeing that firsthand now
1: absolutely because while we typically you know we we do try to pack a lot into to 30 weeks and so you're right Will, oftentimes students come in and it's we complete this step, it's on to the next step, it's on to the next step um, and I think sometimes there's not enough time spent like you said reflecting back what was the previous iteration, um, what did we actually learn from that experiment, from that test, how can we better plan going forward and, and again that's something we need to improve with the course but at the same time you're right this whole putting a pause on actually being able to get in and, and get the hands dirty and actually build these things does allow for more time for reflection, which is critically important when you're talking about medical devices.
0: Yeah, and kind of going off of that, um, so obviously we're talking a lot about the way that the products can be shifted towards COVID-19, but I think it's very important for the viewers of the show to really understand kind of what are some... Typical kind of segments or market opportunities for bioengineering projects. Uh, since a lot of times bioengineering itself is not very well understood or known. Um, so, what could you provide some examples of maybe some bioengineering projects that the senior design students might be working on right now, uh, obviously without going into any IP?
1: Sure. Uh- Some of the kind of the big ones we have there, and we do, we often see a split. Um, A lot of the teams come in and they want to do a kind of a biomedical device, something that's going to directly affect human health. Um, So to that end, we have a couple of different projects. One of the projects they're actually looking at an IV line securement device um, so that patients who are non-compliant can't go in and just rip out their IV cord, right? And then there's a whole bunch of problems there that come downstream from that. Um, So that's, that's one example of kind of a very heavy medical device we have. But, you know, in the past, we've had projects ranging from um, doing plant pathogen detection. So looking at actual bacteria growing on plants. Um, We have ones where they're actually trying to do automated reads of medication um, so that when an IV line is attached, they can detect how much medicine is going into the patient, as well as all the nurse then has to do is hook up the bag, push a button and then walk away. right? Um, And then there will be kind of a monitoring system that signals if there's an issue you know it's funny they're looking at that within a very specific area but i think that is an example of what we were talking about earlier where could these projects be pursued to a wider lens Yeah. and that you think about right now one of the big things the healthcare system is talking about is every hospital is overwhelmed
2: Mm
1: -hmm. um think about the the nurse to patient load and how much that changes nurses now have far less time to spend with each individual patient how great would it be if we could have automated systems to help monitor those patients so that the nurses could then focus more on the patients who are having an issue that need immediate attention um, rather than the ones who are getting their bed rest and are on the ventilators and things are running smoothly. Um, So those are some examples of of current projects we have. Um, There are a lot of others I can go into more detail on. We have groups that are looking at um, blood flow in diabetic individuals. How can they increase blood flow to extremities to decrease uh, you know, diabetic injury. Um, so one of the big things is right. There's a lot of injury to the feet of individuals with yeah. of diabetic patients. How can we get around those things or help provide better treatments? Um, yeah, those are those are some of the projects. If you want to know more, I can talk about some some of the other ones. But those are the typical examples.
2: I can, yeah, I can I mean, tell you a quick fun one from the past uh, was a, a, a smart diaper, if you will. This was a number <laughs> of years ago. But the team developed uh, this diaper that had a, a sort of in the well, crotch region, I don't know what you describe it, uh, little little two or three spots visible from the outside of the diaper. And those would change color depending on whether the, the baby, the infant had uh, certain conditions that could be diagnosed through the urine. So urinary tract infection, uh, glucose in the urine, two or th- nitrites, uh, two or three other things that had medical meaning. And so it, uh, it was quite neat. They, they developed it in conjunction with a pediatrician and understood that it was an alternative to catheterization for these which yep. for these babies, which is a, a rough process for the youngest uh, patients. And so uh, that project actually got some interest from some of the commercial diaper manufacturers, some of the big names in that field. And so, so that's a, a fun example of where, you know, it, it doesn't, the best projects I don't think are always complex. That's sometimes yep. a hard lesson for them to learn. Sometimes a very simple, very inexpensive, elegant solution that's only, it, it's not reinventing a wheel either. It's just a modification to what's already an enormously successful commercial product, the disposable diaper. And you can see in the development of it, how it also crossed paths with other sorts of diagnostic tests that utilize color changes like pregnancy tests and the like. So by, by taking kind of two basic project product ideas and interweaving them in a novel way, they found a really neat undiscovered area of the market. I
0: yeah. And I, I think that's actually a perfect kind of transition into the next part I want to talk about is um, how it's so important to have interdisciplinary action when it comes to uh, working with engineers and business students and other and other departments as well, because um, sometimes when it comes to an engineering department engineers do want to make the most complex something? That's cool something that's awesome uh, But it's usually it might be too expensive to create and then on top of that nobody's gonna buy it. Um, it It doesn't really fit that market need. There's no consumer market for it. It's not something they can scale nobody's gonna invest into it They're not gonna find money in it. Uh, it might solve a problem, but that problem is just not big enough necessarily um, so When it comes to senior design uh, course, I know that uh, Dr. Josso, and I've I've been supporting Dr. Josso for the last uh, five years now, actually, Um, on on that course, um, kind of a partnership between the School of Business and the the engineering department on bioengineering and kind of turning those senior design projects and creating business plans out of it. Um, Do you think that there's um, necessary value kind of in the future growing the senior design project to get more involvement from other departments to help grow Um, the senior design classes, not, not maybe not even just in bioengineering, but all the engineering classes to really turn these ideas into viable startup ideas that can potentially commercialize, get some funding and be more than just an idea.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think this has been true for the past number of years and it seems to be getting more important with every passing year and it is this interdisciplinary approach. one from a communication standpoint. The sign, or the uh, the lay audience, right, every day, anyone who's in, involved, you know, business individuals, people who sell insurance, people who work at grocery stores, right, everyone is a lot more in tune to what's happening in the scientific fields these days. They want to know what's going on. And so it becomes a lot more important, I think, for scientists and engineers to be able to talk to those audiences. These are people who, they're, they're smart, right? But they don't have the, the typical four years in an engineering or science program, maybe plus some graduate work. And so oftentimes the way you need to talk about very detailed scientific processes, you have to take a different lens there. You have to take a different angle. And being able to do that effectively and successfully is critically important, both from establishing collaborations, um, as well as just distilling out that information. I mean, you see even around this COVID crisis, how much misinformation there's gone out from everything from potential what could or could not be a treatment yeah. um, to the most recent one about, uh, you know, Will and I were talking about this the other day, the, the 5G towers and how yeah. that's Crazy. causing COVID, <laughs> which it's, it's not, right? Um, so even even those types of things, right, can very easily become morphed yeah. into something that they're not or misinterpreted. And really, I would argue that that falls on us as educators, scientists and engineers to correct those things. Um, Things can always be taken the wrong way, but it's easier to take them the wrong way when you're not explaining them clearly. And this is a skill we try to work on. This is one of the benefits. So the teams work with with business students in the fall quarter. Um, They can also learn things from those students as well. Our engineers don't know anything really about how you build a business, what considerations go into there. the one thing i tell the student teams over and over is that if you really want to do this senior design project if you really are interested in tech transfer if you're really interested in putting your name on something and establishing kind of your own mini dynasty um do the extra work make use of these resources the students get a thousand dollar budget free of charge essentially to start a, a whole project mm-hmm. um that can be the basis for then showing data to get better funds The most successful groups I've seen, and I think this will be true going forward, um, are the ones who really throw themselves into senior design. They really invest in it. And what I mean by that is they're not only doing the assignments for the class. They're not only, you know, meeting with their faculty advisor to talk about the project, but they make use of these other resources we have on campus, such as Blackstone Launchpad. Again, 30 weeks is not enough time to go over all the scientific details of how to do design to go over in detail how to build a business to how to do intellectual property negotiations. We just don't have the time. We can give them a little overview of all of these things and we launch into, you know, a medium level of detail on some of them. But also the successful teams are the ones who go out and talk to other departments. I have one group right now this year, one team. Um, that they've reached out to professors in the psychology department um and so they're actually they're working on an inhaler device and so they went and talked to one of them about well the psychology of someone who's having a panic attack or can't breathe um there's another team that reached out again to the psychology department just about kind of tactically how do individuals respond to different types and shapes and sizes of devices and medical devices and holding them what is comfortable what is not um and how does that perception of comfort affect the use of a medical device. Uh, I mean, that's something amazing that we would never have time to cover in senior design, but makes the biggest difference when you're starting to talk about marketing, when you're starting to talk about investing. You know, if you hand someone something with blocky edges versus something that is contoured specifically to their handset, yeah, I think we can all be like, obviously there would be a preference there. Um, But to actually be insightful enough to say, I need to reach out to other experts to get this information and to take the initiative to do that, that's what really sets the the successful a plus teams apart from the other ones
2: okay. yeah well said you know that's you're, what you're describing is a bigger microcosm of education of higher education in general is yeah it's it's hard sometimes the freshman coming in you know you you're out of high school you've been told step one do this step two do that and if you complete all those steps you'll get your degree you'll hopefully go on to something good next you know and that's good and when you go to university of course you have to still tick off all of the boxes about attending the classes and completing the assignments etc but but I try to tell our freshmen I'm the undergrad advisor for bioengineering as well so so every year the new freshmen come in and I get to try to spend an hour giving them you know pearls of wisdom that are dubious of (laughs) quality But, but one lesson I try to tell them is you know that's not enough it's not enough just to have your little day planner and be like this is my class schedule these are my Homeworks, and I'm going to tick all those off and somehow that's magically going to prepare me for everything I need in the next phase of my life. I, I, you know, a university is an enormously special place for all of the other opportunities uh, that this that this environment brings to you. The University of California at Riverside and any of the UC campuses are the same way, right? And so I, I'm sympathetic because the, the students don't have infinite time. You know, you still have to prioritize the classwork and all, but to get involved in undergraduate research, to walk to that other side of campus and talk to some of those experts that Rob was describing, even just meeting those people, you never know when you'll need that insight in, from psychology, from plant pathology, from all these other fields. And, and it's extra true for bioengineers because you know, for better or worse, we are, we're valuable. We're, 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 a, we're one of those players on a team that can play multiple positions yeah. and it's, we're not limited to human health. Certainly we focus often on human health, but you know, sometimes the team will be interested in developing a disease diagnostic, for example, and, and they'll come to me as an advisor and say, Hey, we want to do this for senior design. I'm like, that's great. You're going after a human disease, maybe a bacterial pathogen or something. How are you going to test it? Are you going to find individuals with that disease to, to actually test it on? Do you have the human subjects approval and all the regulatory, you know, compliance that's, a tall order right for a, a you know a three-quarter long you know part of a year course but if you pivot slightly go talk to the plant pathology Folks on campus who are interested in bacterial infections of plants. They can give you samples. There's there's no longer the regulatory burden that human health brings you. And you're solving an important problem, right? Trying to protect our agriculture, which does ultimately improve human health, right? And so so you know, those sorts of interactions and, and widening of your sphere of, of exposure at the university are very special. And so how, how how to give, if I had one piece of advice to give any student coming into the university, it would be that how do you how do you try to cultivate those relationships? Because you never know when you're going Need them, and and after university, they're harder to come by too. University is a wonderful melting pot for those experiences, right? And and so you're going to bump into these people, whether you know it or not. You might as well take advantage of it.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I, I think the one thing to consider when it comes to that is when when you are building a startup team as well, is you do want different uh, skill sets for the team because if everybody has the same skill sets that company is really not going to go anywhere um, because you're going to butt heads and focus maybe on one element too much instead of focusing on all the different uh, components. So by students actually reaching out, working with different departments, with different students, they can find that team once they are ready to kind of move forward with that idea. Um, Some business students to maybe lead the marketing and the strategy development, the business development, some um, subject matter experts from different departments to focus on what you're talking about when it comes to testing and understand the the behind the scenes psychology and all that. Um, And then obviously the engineering team sometimes might need some computer science students. Um, And that was actually the one thing I was going to ask is, um, do you think now, because of the fact that we are really quickly shifting towards technology, that uh, by engineering students, for example, do need uh, more computer science students maybe on their teams or supporting their functionality to some of their ideas to actually become like turn into fruition?
2: Yeah, uh, it's it, it's not a uni- you know. It's interesting to see how the projects develop. There's de- like the diaper example. I mean, yeah. there was no programming, there was no technology to that, and I'd argue that was actually one of the strengths of that project. But but to be sure, the uh, the other the other thing feeding into what you're saying is the ubiquity of Arduino's, Raspberry Pis, uh, you know, these 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 things that the barrier to entry to them. My, my three sons uh, are are playing a program, are learning Python and programming on Raspberry Pis and things as we speak downstairs instead of going to school. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> you know, so so in a way, you're right. And so the ubiquity of those things has made the entry into that uh, easier than it maybe ever was for bioengineers so that you don't have to have a formal CS training to, yep. to get your feet wet in it. And we certainly require our students to have uh, CS classes and experiences as well in bioengineering. But that being said, I, I'm not I'm not, we can't do it all, and there absolutely comes a point where, yes, knowing we have a really outstanding computer science department uh, across the street, and, and we can reach out to them—not just for our undergrads, but for even me in my research lab—I work very closely with computer scientists, and it, it's a wonderful, yeah. CS—it's it, a Swiss Army knife, isn't it? You know, to, yeah. to know someone, to have a friend that has that background—you uh, know, something that could take me a month to solve—they could, they could have someone help me and solve it in half a week. You know, yeah, that's that's enormously valuable for everyone.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, so going off of the topics of senior design and kind of going uh, outside of the university uh, standpoint, obviously right now with the COVID-19 situation, there's a lot of people that want to help and especially engineers that want to help. I mean, Elon Musk took his time to make a bunch of ventilators and he's pushing those out. A lot of different companies are making it. Other engineers are putting, dedicating their resource into developing projects. But the one thing we have talked about off screen is people trying to MacGyver some projects um, and there, there's risk to that at the same time, like it's it's. Obviously, people want to help, but there there's a risk involved with you trying to make your own product and then giving it out to healthcare workers or um, even in other like issues that are co- currently going on when it's untested. Um, and I think that's kind of the the murky waters right now because, like for example, a lot of the treatments for COVID-19 because they're untested. That's why there's getting a lot of pushback on them because you can't for sure say it works. So it's very You don't want to be very careful of saying it works kind of thing. So when it comes to MacGyvering projects, um, do you have any kind of take on um, what steps should somebody who is an engineer take? If they do want to make, for example, masks and 3D print them, um, what steps should they take to ensure that what they're doing is really benefiting, not necessarily hurting um, the situation?
2: Well, I was going to say I'll take a stab at it just because I'm probably personally guilty of some of what you're <laughs> describing. So, uh, so right now, one floor below me in my in my garage uh, are two three D printers that are cranking out you know almost twenty four seven the little plastic frames that are then used with a, a piece of, of of plastic sheeting to make uh, face shields for for folks in in, um, in in the health professions. And so I yeah, what you described has exactly been on my mind. I I on Reddit, on Twitter, and things I've been following these really cool people that are making all these really creative people are three D printing parts for ventilators and things, mm-hmm. right? Uh, you know, even whole whole systems for use like that in in the uh, in, in the ICUs and things. And you're exactly right. It's it's thrilling that there's this like you say MacGyver mentality, and people are trying to uh, do this grassroots brainstorming of these solutions. And also terrifying that some of these things aren't being done by professionals, you know, yeah. by, remotely. And so how do you uh, how do you make sure that what you're proposing isn't worse than what it's trying to fix? And so that's been hugely in my mind. I. We've had these. I've had these 3D printers down downstairs for a little while, and and wanted to do something to help with the pandemic. And after some research, I, I looked at all the various you know masks, all the other sorts of pro, you know, personal protection equipment being printed, and I arrived at this face shield design because the NIH, the National Institutes of Health, had actually gotten their hands on the prototypes from this design and tested them and reported back on the NIH website and said, yeah, we when when you print it with these settings using this design and and you sterilize it using X, Y, and Z, yes, it gets our approval. And that meant a lot to me because I'll be the first to admit I'm not an expert in personal protective equipment. I'm not qualified to look at these different designs and say that's the one that should be used in a hospital but seeing that the experts at the NIH weighed in on it gave me a lot of confidence to try that design and so I've printed now a a, a little over a hundred of them I think and have delivered them to the Riverside County Public Health folks who checked with their doctors before uh, before basically giving me the go ahead to print more and got the confirmation that yeah the, the particular part and confirmation they felt like was useful to them and that meant a lot to me. If it weren't for that kind of feedback uh, I I wouldn't be doing anything personally and I'd probably advise folks to do the same thing but insofar as they can it it helps to you know reach out down the supply chain and confirm that whoever you're preparing these things for you know it's actually up to what their what their needs are Uh, that's another it's another message for the senior design students right we we think we know what the problems are in so many fields right and and if but if you're not an expert in that field sometimes just sitting down with a doctor a nurse a dentist a, a plant pathologist whatever your field is sit with them and find out what the problems they really face are just because you think you know what a nurse might face or something doesn't necessarily mean that's what's on uh, that individual's mind so that's i mean that's that's customer discovery i guess that's something that's that's taught in some of the the you know the entrepreneurship resources at UCR as well but it's absolutely true and and, and to finish the thought it's true of folks that are aspiring to the MacGyver uh, medical equipment at this point they need to make sure it's really what the the end users need. Definitely. Yeah and I think or, or rather I speculate that this is uh,
1: stems from the advantage of the patent system we have here. A lot of those masks if there were patents for them well when you submit a patent you have to disclose the full technical details the dimensions so now people can go in and find that information more easily. I agree with Will I think some of it really depends. Well, what level are you doing that MacGyvering at, and, and what are the potential negatives that can happen? And again, I think assessing those from an interdisciplinary lens is, is very important. Um, obviously, you know the difference between MacGyvering a, a mask that someone is going to wear to help reduce the spread of the infection is a lot different than proposing a new drug or you know me mixing some things up that I got in Amazon on my counter and, and taking that right to, to bolster my health. Those are two very different things. The chances for off-targets of, of a, a potential drug treatment is much higher than, you know, I'm wearing a mask that might not fully prevent me from getting the virus particles and inhaling them. Yeah. Uh, you know, this is this is one of the, the kind of cons that I heard about people even going and sewing, right, their own cloth masks to wear is that it gives people a, a false sense of security. And again, I think it really depends how do you convey that information. If you go with it into the lens of, listen, these face masks are here to reduce your chances of getting this virus. They're not going to protect you, right? They don't make you virus proof. Um, So I think as long as you're still employing the same social distancing factors, right? You're still being considerate about washing your own hands, about not going into areas of high risk, as well as tacking on your own your own homemade mask. I think that's purely acceptable. I think what that helps people do is for individuals like me, well, I can quickly sew together a piece of cloth, put some rubber bands on it and and wear that when I'm going out for my jogs or my runs. Um, And then that decreases the number of people who are buying the face mask that the medical professionals do need, those individuals that are at high risk, right? Um, And so I think that's where the pro lies. Certainly you still have to do social distancing, you still need to do all those things as much as possible. Um, I think it would be, foolhardy for people to say oh you know yeah i'm wearing a a face shield i'm i'm now safe from the virus right i would you know throw back at that individual to really think about how this virus spreads and what those devices are doing um but that being said i think the fact that we are seeing people get involved to have 3d printers at their houses and and trying to help out i think that's huge i I think that speaks to the altruistic nature um, of our society with people helping each other out um, I think it's something that I would like to see moving forward even after this pandemic settles down. Um, you know, it's, it's a shame on one hand that we don't have the national resources for the, the government and the companies to just be producing these things. Um, on the other hand, I think that's a, a big strength of our society as well, that we do have people who are willing to step up. Um, and as Will, even to, to kind of harken back to what Will said, the fact that medical professionals went in and assessed these things, right, to try and provide that guidance. Um, I think that's where you really turn to experts for help, right, is, is what kind of limits and windows can they set? What recommendations can they make? And it's up to us to follow those recommendations, whether it's about making something technical to help out or whether, again, it's more on the social end of things and how we care about our day to day lives.
0: Definitely. And um, I, I think that's also kind of interesting to tie that into um, kind of open source patents and what we were just talking about. Um, I think this is going to open up the doors, especially with 3D printing uh, for a lot more um, grassroots development of a lot of different technologies and a lot of support for society, uh, because uh, I'm seeing it more and more that uh, people are open sourcing uh, different technology stacks. They're also open sourcing um, yeah, patents. They're they're they're. Cr- creating this collaboration around it, um, allowing individuals to do it on their own. Um, and I do agree that if you do do the steps, make sure that they're certified steps. So you're going through the correct resources, the NIH and all these other fundamental steps to make sure that what you are doing is is legitimate um, because it does in the end of the days, it does benefit people. But as we were discussing, we got to be very careful of weighing the pros and cons of every activity that individuals are trying to do in this situation. Um, so to shift from that, um, I'm really interested to hear about like hot topics in bioengineering. Obviously we already kind of talked about some of them. Um, but if there's any very like hot topics that, um, individuals should know about that are kind of behind the scenes and a lot of bioengineers right now are focusing, obviously COVID-19, there's going to be a lot involved with that, but outside of COVID-19, is there any really hot topics that bioengineering students, uh, and individuals, professionals are looking at right now?
2: Yeah, I, I, one comes to mind that I can think of, and this is just a, a topic that I've seen laced throughout a lot of my classes and a lot of the senior design projects, is just leveraging as a bioengineer, leveraging the capabilities of the smartphone that's in your pocket to begin with, right? And we're seeing that already. We've got my little Apple watch and things. And so there's certainly wearables that are dedicated to that. But, uh, but the beauty of that, I think, when I talk about using these sensors and things in my classes is, you know, you can leverage the accelerometers and the the, the gyroscopes and the magnetic, you know, magnetometers and things, these sensors that are in these smart Phones, you can leverage them for applications that weren't what they were made for in the first place. So for example, the gyroscopes that I think were designed originally so, you know, you could play some of these games, right? You know, a Mario Kart kind of thing where you can tilt and, 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 and control steering or whatnot. Well, in a medical diagnostics class that I teach, uh, we'll have students use those sensors in a project and they'll be able to show that I can slip it into my shirt sleeve here and measure my range of motion. Uh, Mm. for example and that's the kind of thing there's specific instruments for that if you're undergoing physiotherapy and trying to recover motion in your joints well of course you can buy a special instrument for that if you want to measure it or you could leverage the smartphone that's sitting in your pocket right now for that and i find that's uh, you know it's really it lends itself to classroom projects, but it could even, you know, open up new vistas for for other research. Thinking back of another project like that, where someone found a research study where there were uh, early risk factors associated with Alzheimer's or dementia. Or I don't remember all the details of it, but the diagnosis was simply how quickly could you recite numbers backwards. So say, say 17, 16, 15, 14, 13, you know, for example, into a recording. Well, so again, for this class in medical diagnostics, the students wrote a little program on their smartphone that timed that in, you know an individual and how quickly they could recite that backwards. And think about, you know, from a diagnostic perspective, it's unobtrusive. It's the kind of thing that's super easy for someone to do. And it's, it's obviously not a definitive diagnosis of, of cognitive impairment or uh, dementia or things like that, but it could be a very easy way to uh, screen whole populations of folks and give them, you know, give them a little flag that, yeah, you might want to go be checked in because statistically you're outside of the norm here. So so I guess to try to, that, that, that's sort of the broad answer to your question is just, we, we as as bioengineers are the beneficiaries of these enormous advances in information technology and most most obviously wearables and cell phones. And okay. so we'll continue to see that just permeate through healthcare and we're going to leverage those hard and, and hopefully that, that will bring benefits to people's health and, and, and outcomes. Okay. Robert, you
1: have
0: anything out
2: of that? Um, no, I, I agree with a lot
1: of that. I think it's going to be what are the kind of small, adaptive technologies. Um, people are more interested in technologies. I think companies and projects that seek to get more people involved um, that can do the little things to make day to day life easier. I think we're going to see an, an upshoot in those things.
0: Yeah, because I, I definitely do see obviously the rise of big data um, and there's data resources, IOT and all these complementary data sets. Um, they are going to open the door for a lot of um, health related um, devices um, and technologies in general, because um, the, the medical industry for, for a long time has lagged a little bit um, behind. And now with this huge shift in technology, I think there's going to be a huge surge in what is doable um, and what can resolve those problems that have been lagging for a while. And people have been trying to find solutions, but there just necessarily hasn't been anything that is viable and cost effective enough to implement like nationwide.
2: Val, can I ask you a question sort of as a follow-up to that? Um, Like recently, I think about a week ago or so, Google came out with some data from their smartphones showing patterns of how often people were outside of their houses and things. And they were able actually even to assess by a state-by-state or even a county-by-county level how how well people were were social distancing, how well people were staying home. Mm -hmm. Uh, and And then there's the criticism of that, probably rightly stated that that is somehow intruding on our privacy. How do you see the interplay between... Uh, you know our, our societal and personal, uh, uh, you know, affinity for privacy, which is which is fair, uh, but also the the power of that that kind of data, right? It seems, on the other hand, kind of foolish to not take advantage of that kind of data if it gives us, you know, useful public health insight.
0: Yeah, that's a really tricky situation, especially with the um, the really the culture in America, because I'm originally from Finland and for example in Finland and in Sweden Sweden especially they got rid of uh, credit cards and they're adding chips stuff that in the states I know would never happen because people are too scared about it with privacy and it does make sense so there's there's a fine line to it that I believe Um, I think there just needs to be more transparency of who actually owns that data and having systems so for example I I research a lot of blockchain and I, I think that there's a lot of ways that blockchain for example can give the data privacy back to the consumer but then you can permit what data you do give out to companies to then use for those situations to benefit health uh, and benefit society. I think you have to be very careful though where the data is like stored. So for example, if Google has all the data, I do worry about that because it comes to, it's too much data for one company to control because it's not like they just have the data of how often you're outside, but they can complement that with your purchase history, your shopping history. There's too many complementary data sets for them. So that's why I worry with like Google and Facebook and all these top companies. But at the same time, that data really can make life so much better for individuals. Um, So if there's a way that that data privacy can get shifted back to the user and there's more transparency of how that data is being used, I think that's going to open the doors out for those kinds of technologies and those kinds of resources uh, to really benefit society in the long term. Um, so that's what I'm really looking at. And that's some of the research I do like outside of my, my startups is that I do look at how data can be used and how can we decentralize it in a way that it, it one protects the user's privacy and they get to control what happens. But at the same time, um, it still can be used. So it's not just wasted data that's out there, especially with now IoT and all these sensors everywhere um but yeah it's i think it's a really tricky kind (laughs) of a fine line that just needs to be played um overall but i I hope it does get used uh like in the future um but it's really how is it getting gonna used um that i i and a lot of other people do worry about um for example when i go out all the time i try to make sure that my location is not always being tracked because i don't want that at all times but at the same time i do know the benefit of it because it'll give me the faster routes um it'll show me discounts at different stores um so yeah there's, there's a fine line to it but i i do think that the one thing when it comes to consumers in general is that they will always <laughs> unfortunately give up their own privacies for convenience um so as long as it does provide more convenience to users more and more people will opt into it but on the other side of that equation is like, for example, Google, Apple, their, uh, privacy statements are ridiculous. You don't ever read them through. They're like 50 pages long and you just accept it. Um, so if they take away the legal jargon, make it more transparent and understand where it's going for, I think more people will be okay with it. Um, but there's too much gray area and that's where I think the pushback comes from. Um, so kind of heading, um, towards the last couple parts. So we did talk a lot about bioengineering as a whole, the senior design projects and startups, but the one thing I, I really want to close out with, especially since the show is uh, sponsored by Blackstone Launchpad at UCR and, uh, um, as well as the office of technology partnerships at UCR is really understand the resources that exist at UCR for, for startups. So a lot of bioengineering students, but not just bioengineering students, business students, and everybody else, um, what resource they can take advantage of to be able to, um, turn some of their ideas into reality and understanding the steps that it takes as an entrepreneur to go through. And I know, Will, you've gone through some of the resources and you have a lot of touch points with them. So do you mind sharing some of the uh, resources you've used as a professor at UCR?
2: Happy to. Um, So I'll I'll say this in terms of how pervasive those resources are in my experience at UCR. Every, I think, I got to, I, I, I'll say this and I'll find someone that didn't, but I think every grad student that I've had go through my lab since I've been at UCR since 2012 also went through uh, the NSF-sponsored i program that the Office of Technology Partnerships uh, oversees at, at UCR. And so I, I bet your viewers are, are, are familiar with NSF i but, but if they're not, right, NSF uh, sponsors research, of course, but they also sponsor and are interested in trying to see the, the, the technology that they fund the development of also translate into industry, to start new companies, to employ people, to... To, to increase the global competitiveness of the United States and et cetera. So it's all, it's a win-win when things get commercialized. And so, um, so yeah, all of our researchers, all the researchers in my lab, my grad students um, are, we're motivated by the science and the engineering of what we're trying to solve, but we're also practical engineers trying to solve problems. And just like I think Rob and, and I think all of us have said this up to one point, man, the worst reason for a business to to, 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 to die is because no one wanted to buy what the product was. And yet when you go through the I-Corps process with the, um, the various entrepreneurs and residents that you work with in the Office of Technology Partnership and the i program, you learn that's like the number one reason that new startups die. And it's so hard for us because the technology that comes out of my lab, and this is true for the students in senior design too, man, by the end of it, they love their tech, right? They've put blood and sweat and tears into it. This is world-changing tech. How can everyone not love this? They should be throwing money at me, right? And then you do a little customer discovery and you realize, oh crap, I've been going after the wrong problem the whole time, right? I should have known that earlier. Clear. And okay. so, and I've been guilty of that in my career more than once. And so, so the, 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 you know, what I've learned from my involvement with the Office of Technology Partnerships at UCR is that, yeah, it, you know, it, ideally the customer discovery, the understanding the needs, the wants and needs, the pain points of the people that you're engineering the solution for, reach out to those people early and often, right? Uh, they it will make, you know, even if you're not gonna commercialize the work ultimately, it will make this, the quality of your science and engineering far better, right? Uh, because, you, you know, you'll have their insights into it. You'll know you're solving things that actually matter. And it is the first step toward actual successfully translating this technology out of the university and, and into something viable, which again, if you're an engineer, right? You know, the, the end of the line isn't us writing a paper about what we did or getting a grant, you know, uh, funded about what we did. The end of the line for successful engineering is it gets in the hands of the people that need it in this country and around the world and makes their lives better. Right. And solve some sort of problem they're facing. And that's extra true in biomedical engineering, which is our field, me and Rob. So, yeah, you know, long winded answer to your question. but. You know, the, the resources that the Office of Technology Partnership uh, provides uh, help you at every step along that way. And and for that, I'm very grateful. And I've totally integrated it into my research lab and my graduate students. And Rob can comment about some of the, the bridges he's building between the curriculum at UCR and, and that office as well. Definitely,
0: yeah, love
1: to hear. Yeah, you. so the, the first thing I want to say, and I don't want anyone taking what I'm about to say wrong, iCore is a fantastic program. I mean, if you really want to get into the entrepreneurial mindset understanding how you can take technology and actually turn it into something and get it to the people who need it, I don't think there is anything better than i right now. Yep. Um, they're very focused. They have very talented individuals running and building that program. Um, not only those are individuals talented, but they have a fantastic network of experts and people um, to help link you in and connect you to those links that you need, um, those resources that you need, personnel and otherwise. I think one downside of that, and, and rightly so, as Will mentioned, you know, it's mainly geared towards graduate students and PIs on the campus. Um, again, they're they're committing resources. They want to know that there is a level of commitment there that oftentimes you find in graduate students and professors, um, as well as the resources to continue that development. You know, a lot of undergrads can't match those resources as well, right? Um, however. I think that's one of the key strengths of Blackstone Launchpad coming onto campus now. Um, and in talking with Mayan and how we can better interface the bioengineering senior design with Blackstone Launchpad um, and, and start to communicate with i about seeing, can we do something at the undergraduate level? And those opportunities are starting to form um, I think that will be a, one of the biggest changes we see over the next two or three years at UCR in terms of entrepreneurial development is opening up those same avenues that i provides, but for the undergraduate population. Um, and so I think the biggest thing that current undergrads can do is, A, again, get into a lab, start doing research, especially find those labs who are doing i programs. Even if you can't attend directly, and Will, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm sure that those conversations come up then at lab meetings or project meetings, right? And you can start gaining exposure that way. You can ask questions to facilitate that process so that then when you're now a graduate student, you already have the backbone information and you can really jump in and be more productive. The other thing I would argue is get involved with the Blackstone Launchpad. Um, you know, I tried to tell students this about the MES as well. Don't just be... Uh, an individual who just goes and, and sits there and does nothing. Get active, get involved, ask questions. There's no reason, you know, one of the one of the big questions I'm sometimes asked when I go to student groups and I'm talking with them is, well, what if we're really interested in this whole tech transfer idea? What if I, I want to get really involved in this process, but I don't have an idea? What, what do I do? How do I get involved? Well, chances are over the course of your undergrad career, you're going to start to build a network and a technical background. Um, that's what you're here for and that's what you get. By going to these Blackstone Launchpad meetings, it's only going to be a matter of time until someone else comes in and says, hey, I have an idea, but I can't do this on my own. I need other people. Well, if you've been going to Blackstone Launchpad, you know, you start as a freshman or a sophomore, and you do, you just go and you listen, you start to learn who's all involved with that, right? Start building a network. Um, Then when those other individuals come in, you're going to seem like a perfect candidate because they're going to come in not knowing much about the entrepreneurial backgrounds. And you'll be able to say, Oh, well, have you considered X, Y, or Z? And all of a sudden, not that you're an expert, but you know what you're talking about because you've learned it from the experts. Um, and then you're gonna be a more appealing candidate for them to wanna work with. They're gonna be like, wow, this individual took the initiative to come and talk to me. They've been learning about this stuff. They have that background. They're also in the engineering school. And so they have that engineering background I would need. Wow, what a match, right? Yeah. Um, and so I think that's one of the, the huge benefits, both from, getting the engineering students who have ideas the entrepreneurial resources um, because that's outside of our curriculum right now again a little in senior design um, as well as matching them to individuals who do have the ideas but don't have the technical backgrounds Um, and so I think that's one of the the two biggest advantages that's going to come out of this Blackstone launch pad um, as well as a myriad of other things you know Maya and I are talking uh, we kind of have a brain trust there's more people involved than just the two of us about how can we start bringing elements of I-Core into senior design? Yep. Um, how can we use Blackstone Launchpad as a bargaining chip to go out and talk to companies in the air and say, Hey, look, this is another resource we have. So if you come to now our engineering program with a project idea and let our students work on that, our students aren't going to just work on the technical aspects. They also have these other resources they can pull from to really develop this idea. Um, And so, again, I would say to anyone who's interested in getting involved with that kind of whole, how do you take a a project from the scientific world? How do you develop it scientifically? um, Go through those iterations, but also how do you do the entrepreneurial aspect? uh, Blackstone Launchpad for the undergrads is certainly where it's at. And going through those processes again, it does, it takes extra effort, right? And time is important. You know, you're going to have to go to the meetings. You're going to have to do more than hang around and talk to people. Um, do some of your own research, you know, on Google afterwards. But again, it's the individuals who really put the efforts in, right? The more you put into your college experience, the more you get out of it. And this is, I think, an experience that's going to be worth putting the time into on this Blackstone Launchpad.
0: Yeah. And I I think it's also very important to note that if you're very interested in entrepreneurship, it's it's not an easy road to take. So it does require that extra, extra push. It requires you to literally network with everybody, talk to as many people as possible, join as many events as possible, learn things that you never thought you learned before, because in a startup, you're not going to have a full functioning team to be able to do everything. You're going to have to do a lot of different aspects of business, uh, product development, and all that. Um, but then going back into the resources, iCore definitely will teach you the fundamentals of customer discovery and what you need to do to get started with a business, learning lean startup methodology, which is so important and not necessarily just for startups. But if you work at uh, major tech firms nowadays, they do that with micro teams for for their new product development so you're gonna to have to learn their skill sets anyways um and then going into blackstone launchpad since it is powered by tech stars you do get uh if you do request it you can get mentors from tech stars which are Professionals in the industry that are doing what you are trying to do, um, they can connect you with the right resources and mentorship to guide you in the right path. And also, Blackstone Launchpad, um, since they're powered by TechStars as well, they do provide opportunities to send you to different events. So they have one in Times Square. They 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 sent me and a, a PhD student to CES to present there. Those are opportunities I never thought I would ever have, but it came from connecting to the right resources and working with them uh, day in, day out. So yeah, if you're a student, you definitely need to reach out to these resources if you wanna get into the world of entrepreneurship.
1: And yeah, and we're seeing that with one of the teams this year. Um, you know, again, they were a go-getter team. Um, they really stepped up to the plate both for the, the curriculum requirements in bioengineering and senior design. Um, they were knocking out all of those things, but they've also been making full utility of those connections in, in the Blackstone Launchpad, um, as well as the resources there. Uh, and I purely expect that that group is gonna go on to, to do great things after they graduate with their project. Um, I mean, time will tell, but, and, and I'm hoping to see a shift here at UCR. I'm hoping to see more of that. Um, you know, I've been telling some of my colleagues as well as the students, a, a dream of mine would honestly be that, you know, a year or two down the road, we start having four or five teams come out of senior design that are going the patent route, that are going the startup route. Um, and I think that starts with, you know, you get a little thousand dollar budget in senior design going to these Blackstone launch pad groups because they do. They also have the ties into these other national competitions and regional competitions um, where that's where the big bucks are. Right. And I think people then can also realize or, or hopefully appreciate that. Again, it's kind of one of those things. The more minor awards you get, the easier it is to get a bigger award. Um yeah you know, this is why even in the academic world, right, people will write R21s, which are a higher level NIH grant, before they write an R01. Um, Having that experience of getting successful funding makes it easier to get more funding down the road. You go to an investor and you say, hey, look, you know, I did senior design. Um, I went to Blackstone Launchpad and I won XYZ competition or I finished second, I finished third. That proves your medal as well as proving your commitment the project, right? And that's what investors also want to see is how committed to you This, How much are you able to pivot when challenges come up? Um, you hear time and time again from investors that they often don't invest in the idea, they invest in the team, right? Um, why? Because those teams will overcome any challenges or difficulties. They already have experience and demonstrated doing that. Um, it's easier to do that when you make use of all the resources available, such as I-Core, Blackstone Launchpad, the full the full matter of a senior design course
0: definitely um so the way that we like to close out the the brew podcast is having both uh, both you guys uh talk to some advice to entrepreneurs uh students um and colleagues just based off your experience um what would your advice really be if anybody wants to get in the world of bioengineering entrepreneurship or just entrepreneurship in general what would your advice be
2: Rob, you want to kick it off?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, so I have, I have two pieces of advice. And the first one is, um, well, three pieces of advice. One, don't be afraid to ask for help. You're not going to know it all. You just can't, um, especially if you're a young entrepreneur. I-, I would argue even if you're an old entrepreneur. Things are constantly changing. Systems and processes are constantly changing. And so when you don't know something, rely on the people who do. I think you know, a lot of people who I see first come in entrepreneurial programs, they're really worried about talking about their device. They don't wanna give away any of the details because you know I need to get my patent, I need to make sure no one steals this from me. Um, but as we discussed, it's a lot of work. Yes, you don't wanna give out all the technical details, that's not a good idea. But to sit down with someone and have a conversation about something you don't understand and how it pertains to your project, you're gonna get more information out of that than really you're exposing yourself to risk there. Um, my second major piece of advice would be don't take no for an answer. Um, you're going to be learning new things if you're going to say there's no way. You know, sometimes you even hear that from experts in the field. They'll be like, look, people have been looking at that for 20 years No." Um, I think then it's important to pivot and say, OK, well, why are they saying it's not impossible? What are the problems or questions that haven't been answered that make this currently impossible? Can I start or can I do something to answer those questions? Because if you take that route, all of a sudden the impossible becomes possible. What people were saying couldn't be done, couldn't be done. You say, well, why? You answer that why and now you're ready to move forward. And you're the one who's done that. You're at the forefront now. Um, The other phrase you often hear is that successful people take advantage of every opportunity. And that's true. But I think truly successful individuals make their own opportunities. Um, And to do that, you have to be diligent. You have to be hardworking. Um, you have to be willing to meet people where they're at and always be surveying and asking, how can I help? Right? If you, if you are attending seminars, lectures, Blackstone Launchpad meetings, and you go in there with the attitude of an open mindset of saying, Hey, I don't know it all. So I'm going to ask for help when I need to, but B, where are other people who could use my technical expertise? That's how you build a solid network. That's how you get involved with more of these things. And it's going to increase your chances of success because then down the road, When you run into a problem, so-and-so who you helped with a problem is going to remember that, and chances are they're going to be willing to chime in and help, um, whether that's with an opinion, whether that's with their technical expertise, or even with a resource. Um, People do notice hard work, and people are willing to reward that hard work, Um, but you have to be at the position to actually be willing to do that.
0: Yep, I think that's great advice. Will, how about you?
2: Uh, That's well said, Rob. It's better than anything I can say. I'm trying to think back to advice I've been given. I remember my PhD advisor saying something along the lines of, it's okay to fall in love with your ideas, but don't marry them. If that's, a, I don't know if that's a thing or if he made that up or not, but but it's, it's come to mind a lot. I think it's true. Um, and, and again, it's another, it's another thing. Customer discovery, I've been through the i program for several of our ideas, several of our invention, inventions. And some of them I think we've learned from customers there was a need from it for, for that technology. And some we've learned there, there wasn't. We were barking up the wrong tree. And you know, the sooner we learn that the better. And so that's an example of where, you your ideas are so precious to you, you love them, but, but keep, a, keep a sort of impartiality to them and always be, be willing to have that uh, other input from other people, from subject matter experts in that field, and ultimately the people who would supposedly be purchasing your idea, you know, the possible customers, uh, getting feedback from them. And, and it's just so, the earlier you do it, I don't see why not, the better, right? You're just going to learn, it's just going to make things better, even if you're not commercializing it, even if you're just trying to do a project for a class or just trying to do a, do a research project in a research lab like I do. And um, and I guess the, the the second second thing coming to mind again we sort of orbited around this a fair bit t- today but just. You know the opportunities for widening your sphere into other application areas than what you set out to do. I, I, um, I, I'll, I'll um, I love the university environment. If they let me, they're gonna find my, my dead body someday when I'm 80. You know, in my office, slumped over because I love UCR. I love the academic environment. I love having conversations with folks like you who I would have never met except for my involvement with UCR and the support of OTP and everything else going on in this conversation. And so. Um, you know, for folks that are in that environment, college is so tough. It's overwhelming. You, especially in a, in something rigorous like the STEM fields. You know, our engineering students, man, they're burning the midnight oil, and they they're they're having a hard time. I admire them for pulling through it. But there's all these other resources, be it Blackstone Launchpad, be it the you know the I Corps program, and be it something mundane like. Uh, I I, I went and attended some uh, lectures in the entomology department at one point, right? So entomology, you know, if if folks know the term right is insects, right? That's the bug people on campus. Well, UC Riverside actually has one of the best entomology departments in the world, turns out. They're on the other side of campus from me. And I learned in learning from some of the research from these entomologists that some of the technology that I developed in my lab for human health applications was actually really suitable for solving some problems with pollinators, with bees, which are important for our food supply, which are again important for human health in a roundabout way. And so, so again, that's a, it's a message that's sort of specific to bioengineers because we are Swiss army knives. We can be, we have tools for so many application areas. Actually, it's daunting. The challenge then is finding where do you want to plug in because you can, you can interface with and make a difference in so many different fields as a bioengineer, but that's true for Engineers of all stripes, scientists, entrepreneurs. So long-winded way of saying, um, you know, what, what what your idea is, your invention, your, your your passion, whatever it is, you know, go after what you see is the application for it. But always expose yourself to all these other areas. You might be missing the killer app in another field that you're not aware of. And if you're at a university or in a, a city like Riverside with opportunities like it brings with you, tap into those things, broaden that circle, meet people that aren't carbon copies of yourself right? and uh, Because those are the people that you'll get those insights from, uh, those aha moments where you're like, wow, you know, my original, my original idea was great, but if I pivot and go after this, then suddenly we have something. So so yeah, you know, th- that's like lightning striking. I can't wave a wand and make it happen, but I know that if it's like lightning striking, I can spend more time on the top of mountains and I'm more likely to get hit by lightning, right? That's a poor metaphor, but you get the idea, right? <laughs> you can do things that, that get you exposed to that community. And, uh, and hopefully when the time is right, lightning will strike and, and it'll be good for you. So...
0: Definitely. I think that's fantastic advice. I appreciate both you gentlemen for being on this show. Um, we had a lot of insightful conversations. So hopefully a lot of students listen in and really understand what's happening in the bio, bioengineering department and um, advice of what they should take if they're ever interested in entrepreneurship. But that's it for the Brook podcast. Um, once again, thank you gentlemen for being on here. And I can't wait to see what happens with the bioengineering department going into the future.
1: Thanks. Yeah. Thanks thank for having you, us. Bro.
0: Thank you for tuning into The Brew. I hope you enjoyed this episode and tell us what you thought about our conversation in the comments below. If you guys like our content, make sure to follow us on our various
1: social media platforms and we will see you all next time.